Let's take a minute and pray together. God, we, uh, we do declare that all the credit, all the fame, and all the glory is yours. Your word says that from you and through you and to you are all things. So to you be the glory forever in all places and every season of our lives. Uh, we give you glory. We give you praise for who you are, for what you have done. If there's any measure of us that comes in here this morning, um, turning our face to you to worship, it's because there's been a supernatural change that's taken place in our lives. Um, so you receive the glory for the fact that we are here worshiping today, because apart from your grace, we would not be pursuing you. We would not praise your name. We'd still be rebels to your name. And so we, we thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. We thank you that through your spirit that you have opened our eyes to your glory uh, in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you that you've given us newness of life as those now who have, have been raised from the dead, as it were, to walk in newness of life. We can say no to sin and yes to you in ways that we never could before. So would you remind us of truths that we need to hear this morning? Would you bring conviction where we need to have conviction of sin? Um, would you change us, shape us into your image that you might be more and more pleased with the way in which we go about living our lives. God, I pray as well that through your spirit that you'd, you'd ready our hearts um, to take in and apply the things that we hear this morning. Thank you for your word, and I pray that as I preach it that I'd be able to help your people, these people that I love. Thank you that you are faithful, that you don't trust in me, but I trust in you. And so as, as we sit under your word, would you find us help a humble and hungry and eager to hear from you this morning. We love you. We thank you for who you are and for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, grab your Bibles. Let's open to the book of Acts. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be finishing up chapter two this morning. And before we, uh, before we dive in, just a way of kind of quick summary. Um, the, the first part of the book of Acts, we've, we've basically transitioned from the earthly ministry of Jesus, and Luke is writing kind of volume two. So he wrote the gospel of Luke, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and his death, and his resurrection. Then Acts picks up, and it's kind of the volume two that explains the, now the, the, the heavenly ministry of Jesus through his spirit, through his people. And so in chapter one, we see them gathering. They're waiting for this promised spirit of power. Jesus says, you're gonna receive power. You're gonna be my witnesses throughout the entire world. And they wait, they pray. God's spirit comes, supernatural enablement. They speak in languages that aren't their own. And then Peter gets up and he preaches a message to explain to those who are curious and confused exactly what's happening. And so in this first and greatest, you might argue, Peter's, sermons. He lays it down. He preaches Jesus from the Old Testament. says Jesus was delivered up according to the, the plan A of God. He was crucified at your hands. He was raised from the grave, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and people's hearts are pierced. And 3,000 souls come to faith. And so if you can imagine, I don't know if you've ever served in children's ministry, if you can imagine 3,000 newborns at your feet, it's a little bit like that. But there are maybe mostly adults, yet 3,000 spiritual newborns enter into this church in Jerusalem at one time. Substantial work of God. Over the years as a pastor and as a believer, I've, I've talked to Christians in my life. I've counseled some. And 
I've had some people look at, look at me and, and ask whether or not I think if they're believers, based on struggles with sin, they're wrestling with like, am I really a follower of Christ? And they ask me to, in some measure, kind of bear evidence to whether or not they're actually Christians, which is not really biblical. The Holy Spirit's the only one that ever really commends someone else as a believer. But also I've heard countless testimonies over the years of people who have maybe given their lives to Christ. They, they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they were baptized as kids, but yet their life was seemingly kind of disconnected from that for years, sometimes even decades. I never really walked with the Lord. I had this experience, but I never really walked with Jesus. And they're wrestling with what's really the evidence that I'm actually a Christian. The point being this, is that there are evidences of the Christian life. There are vital signs for healthy believers and healthy churches. And so what we're going to see this morning in really compact form is a condensed version of what a healthy church looks like. And the book of Acts isn't about a perfect church that existed in the first century. It's, it's about, in this moment, really propping up for us, what does it look like to be a healthy church and how can we pursue these things the same way that the first century church was dedicated to these things. And I pray it's what God will allow us to do. But you got this now healthy family of 3,000. Let's read in, in verse 40 in Acts chapter 2. Kind of take us back to the very end of Peter's sermon. It says this in verse 40. This is God's word. It says, with many other words, he, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, the crowds, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, a healthy family of 3,000, right? And so now we're going to look at these vital signs of this new family of faith. And I want us to wrestle with that, but not just kind of generally for what does a healthy church look like, but are these same things present in me? Because what's a collective reality should be an individual reality for each believer in the kingdom of God. And so there's personal application all along the way this morning. But you see in verse 42, let's read that together. So in verse 42, it says, that they devoted themselves, this 3,000 plus, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's a whole lot that could be said here. This is a really wonderful depiction of a healthy church. And we did a four-part series out of this same section years ago, but I'm going to preach it all in one message. And I think there's some helpful things about doing it all at once. But the first thing we see in verse 2 is that they were devoted to certain things. So the word devoted here gives us this picture of being presently, actively, continuously committed to something. So the early church was continuously committed, firstly, to the apostles' teaching, to the to the word of God. The apostles delivered that which they heard from Jesus. They delivered the Old Testament. Now in view of who Christ is, as the, the one who was promised from of old. And so they were committed to God's word. So we could say it this way. A healthy, spirit-filled church is a church committed to the word of God. 
Additionally, you won't find a healthy Christian who isn't devoted to the word of God any more than you will find a human being that's healthy who doesn't eat food. It doesn't exist. There's no category biblically for a healthy Christian apart from the word of God. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He says, nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. And there's a few passages I'll rattle off just here real quickly. But one of them, again, keeping in mind, you've got a church that's full of spiritual newborns, 3,000 plus. And Peter uses that language in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he says this. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, or the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The implication is there's no growth apart from the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. It just does not happen apart from God's word. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians three sixteen says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the question maybe becomes like, why? Why is, this such a, why is this such an earnest commitment that we need to have? Well, you probably went through this week and probably different moments you were confused about something. Like we get confused all the time. And God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That which gives wisdom to the confused. We're all unqualified to be used by God, left to ourselves. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says, God's word that's breathed out by him is able to equip everyone, make them adequate for every good work. That's the word of God's role in the life of a believer. It seems like every step we take at times seems to be insecure. But God's word in 2 Peter chapter 1 is that which is sure and firm. When we get to the end of ourselves, inevitably, all of our trying, all of our effort, and we feel like we don't have any hope because of circumstances, Romans 15, 4 reminds us it's God's word that brings encouragement and hope. And here's one particular challenge to this. One challenge to being continuously committed to the word of God is that some people would, would discount Christianity saying that the Bible, is, that the Bible contradicts itself. There's some arguments in there, some apologetics that we can apply to help that. But here's what I would submit. Is that most people don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. Most people reject the Bible because it contradicts them. And the way that they live, we're confronted with the various things that we want to do that don't jive with the word of God. And we don't want to be contradicted by the scriptures. But a healthy believer and a healthy church is submitted to, is continuously committed to the word of God, to the apostles' teaching. I mean, if we got up here and tried to preach week in and week out something other than God's word, I mean, we might have enough experience between the four of us to preach maybe one Sunday without God's word, without anything to say to you other than just our experience, but we come to preach God's word, his revealed word as that which grounds us and secures us. And we know from singing that song, um, Come Thou Fount, there's this, there's this line in that song that always strikes me as peculiar because you want to raise your hands because it says prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And it's actually bad news. 
But the good news is God's word and, and God's grace is what secures us and anchors us back to him. So even though we're prone to wander, God's word is what brings us back. And let me encourage you with this as well, is that maybe some of you feel maybe a little bit of apathy toward God's word. Like maybe you come in here this morning and you think about the notion of being continuously committed to God's word and you can rightly look at that and be like, that's not, that's not what would describe my relationship to God's word. I'm not continuously committed to scripture. Maybe you're just confronted with that apathy. Like I just don't desire it the way that I should. Let me give you one thing to consider doing. If you do anything from this morning, it would be this. Pick up your Bible, go to Psalm 119 and spend as much time in it as you need to. Psalm 119 is the longest Psalm in the Bible. It's like 150 verses. And the whole thing is about God's word his precepts, his law, his teaching, what it does in us, the way we should respond to it. There were seasons in the past where it was just, it's, it's like water in a dry land. But go to it and look at the, the passion for it and the product of God's word in the life of the believer. Maybe that's one particular thing you could do this morning to kind of move to a place of continual or continuous commitment to the word of God. The second thing we see they're committed to, continuous commitment to prayer. We saw in the beginning in chapter one as they waited for the spirit of God, the power to come, they were gathered together and they were devoted to prayer. They were praying together. As chapter three begins, just go there with me real quickly. It's the very first verse in chapter three that Pastor Jason will preach next week. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. It seems like the early church was devoted to going to the temple, particularly the hours of prayer. They were devoted to praying. They prayed and later on in chapter three in the midst of persecution. It was their reflex as believers to pray. Let me ask you a question. It's like when you, when you feel the weight of suffering in your life, who do you want to call? Something difficult happens. Who, who does your mind go to? I really want to talk to this person. When you want to celebrate something, who do you want to call? When you need advice, who is it that you think of first and who do you want to reach out to and hear their voice? And all of those things and so many more, the moments of pain, the moments of joy, the moments of confusion, as believers, our reflex should be to pray. And part of being continuously committed to, to prayer, church family, I think is just is taking advantage of the moments where even we try to infuse in the rhythm of our ministry moments to pray as a body, to gather in prayer. Every other month this year, I think we're doing our quarterly, I can't remember what we decided, we're gonna do a concerted week of prayer on a particular topic. We did one a couple weeks ago and I just wanna encourage you to be involved in those things. It's not just a program we're putting in just so we can show on our website we're doing prayer. We need to be praying. Like, cause if, if God doesn't show up here, there's nothing of any eternal benefit that will happen in this ministry if God doesn't show up. And we pray because we have to. We pray because we need God. We pray because we are confused and we need wisdom. We pray because we are broken and we need healing. We pray because there are things to celebrate. We need to give thanks. And we pray because we do suffer and we need God's comfort, all of those things. So we need to be committed to prayer. It should be more of our reflex as believers to pray. Continuously committed to God's word, to prayer, and committed to one another and fellowship. And this has various kind of shades in this text, but they're committed to fellowship. You see that word there. And fellowship is, is a Greek word koinonia, which has various kind of English 
words associated with it. Some of the, the words we would apply to it in English are sharing, participation, partnership, and the one I'm going to zero in on is union. There's a union that God's people have, firstly with Jesus Christ, that then secondarily attaches them, unites them to one another. And that's what fellowship means. A Christian's union with Jesus leads to union with other Christians. By necessity in the Bible, that's what happens. By God's design. J.I. Packer put it this way. He says, Christian fellowship is two-dimensional. It has to be vertical before it can be horizontal. So the vertical is union with Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it this way, that we join into fellowship with God the Son, with the Lord Jesus. That we're united to Jesus Christ. So Jesus then becomes for God's people the value and the content of our fellowship. It's not just camaraderie or social connections or interests. It's spiritual togetherness. It revolves around Jesus. And you can think through probably in your own life. You look around this room. Over the course of the last 20 plus years, I can assure you there are people that I have ended up hanging out with because we have Jesus in common that otherwise would not be hanging out with. There's some people along the way I didn't much like along the way. But we had Jesus in common. We're going to push through it. They probably didn't like me. He's sitting right back there. No, I'm just kidding. Right? But there's, there's difficulty in it because we're different. But what stands above all the differences and all the secondary sameness is the union we have with Jesus. It's Christ that brings us together. This morning and in our fellowship, our shared life, there's a union with Jesus. Our union begins with a common Savior, a shared salvation that leads then to shared life, a union with one another in both quantity and quality. And you see this in the text, in quantity, verse 44, it says, and all who believed were together. In verse 46, it talks about him selling things. And verse, I'm sorry, verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They're together, they're together daily. And this confronts Western Christianity, particularly American Christianity. The average person, based on various polls, goes to church about 40% of the time. So if you go to church every Sunday, you're like a top-shelf Christian, like varsity style. Good job. But is that really the standard? Like if we just show up at church 52 Sundays a year, is that really the standard of obedience for the believer? I submit to you it's not. It's good, certainly, to come here every Sunday. We should do that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the early church was with one another day by day. Not just corporately here. There's an overlap of life in each other's homes and sharing meals and in the moments of prayer that went well beyond just coming on Sunday morning. The early church possessed a continuous commitment to eating together, breaking of bread. It seems to have potentially like a dual meaning of at the Lord's table, which we'll do this morning, we come together to take communion with one another. We come together to celebrate, commemorate our common salvation. We take communion. We break bread in that particular way. But we also do it at the kitchen table, the dining room table, through hospitality, having people in our homes. Life groups is the mechanism that we use for that. Most of you probably had this experience in your home if you've ever been hospitable. There's this unique sociological element that people love to gather in the kitchen. It doesn't matter what you put in other rooms, how appealing it is, people love to just mingle in the kitchen. 
And there's something about the centrality of a meal together that draws human beings together. But I think it's God-given. I don't know if you remember back in Exodus, there's this scene when God comes down on Mount Sinai and he, and he invites Moses and this core leadership team up to come and talk to him. And what they do when they're on the mountain, at least partially, is they have a meal with God. It's an amazing picture, but I think informative too, because there's something communal about a meal. So we share a meal together as believers in the context of life group. There's something biblical we're entering into. But as integral as our kitchen can be our union with one another, Christian fellowship is certainly more than just sharing food. And this word fellowship has kind of been hijacked in some ways because we talk about a fellowship hall, which is okay, it's not the, the name isn't bad, but we associate fellowship with like chili cook-offs, or like chips and punch. And it goes so beyond the bounds of just sharing food. So beyond the bounds of just Sunday morning. It's just sharing in one another's lives, the joys and the sorrows, the times of abundance and times of need. <clears throat> There's a way in which we're called to be committed to the quantity of being together. Let me just submit this to you to consider. As I think in our culture, it's more common than we'd like to think that some people wake up on a Sunday morning or Saturday night and contemplate, I wonder if I'm going to go to church in the morning to be with God's people. Now, I'm, it's not my intent from this message to give some heavy-handed, just come to church every Sunday. We should, but it should be an overflow of our joy because we love God and we love his people. And it breathes life into us to be here together to sing and to hear God's word and to, to have people bear our burdens even as we gather on Sunday morning. Fellowship with other believers and involvement in the local church corporately and from house to house involves this. Here's, here's the way I'd say it. Premeditated commitment. It's like in our lives, there's a premeditation that I am going, there's a, a presupposition that I am going to be at church to be with God's people because I need it. I need it. They need me. It's part of God's design for me. And if you've been here any amount of time, you've heard us preach it. You've probably heard us even one-on-one -on -one or in smaller gatherings. Is that the, the New Testament gives us picture that there's, there's no such thing as a churchless Christian. It's foreign to the New Testament. And we live in, a, in an age, particularly in America, where the idea of churchless Christians runs rampant. And so I have a premeditated commitment to fellowship, being with God's people that goes well beyond Sunday morning. Let me give you a picture of even this week some things that I thought of that I've seen in our body by God's grace and I celebrate. A biblical community, a continuous commitment to one another shows up all over the place. It's all over town. Let me share some expressions of it. It's found in the countless members of our family here delivering meals to one another in times of need. How many of you in this room have received a meal from somebody else as a believer? If you've had a baby here, you probably had several meals. It's life-giving, right? It's, it's found when I drive by Mr. Bayes' house yesterday and I see Dave Wargo's truck in his driveway. I know that Dave's bringing him a meal and just sitting with him and having a time talking to him. That's, that's where fellowship happens. Like it's found when Devante tells me about the men in his life group giving him counsel about life as a young man and the love that's informally adopting him into their family by way of a ceremony and a certificate. That's fellowship. There's overlap in life. People are drawn into one another's homes and their families even. It's found in several different people showing up to help a single mom declutter and pack over the last several weeks. As fellowship, as union together. 
It's found in the countless meals and cups of coffee, bagels, the stand in between two people talking about Jesus and how to do this thing well as long as God gives us life. That's fellowship. It's found in sharing in each other's joys, the graduations and the engagements and the weddings and the babies and also in the sorrows of miscarriages and lost family members and sickness and loss. That's the ground of fellowship. It's not just punching cookies. It's so much more. And I praise God for the way that that's happened and the ways it continues to happen here. But God, I believe, wants us to pursue and excel in it still more. In 197 AD, a North African Christian theologian and church father, Tertullian, wrote a letter to the Roman authorities to kind of appeal to the Roman authorities on behalf of the Christian church that was suffering in that context. He wrote a letter called the Apologeticus, 50 chapters long, 35,000 English words, a massive work. And as part of this work and this appeal to the Roman authorities, Tertullian described the love of the church, the love of believers for one another in comparison to the Roman culture. And he said it this way. He says, but it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Meaning this, the way in which these people love each other so nobly, people put the brand on us as Christians in this context. And the brand essentially says this quietly, would you look at how they love one another? See, see how they love one another? How they're ready even to die for one another? That was the apologetic in the Roman culture. And so he appeals to that. And what happens when we do that? We love Jesus, we love one another, is that there's a particular awe and wonder that comes upon the hearts of people. For us, as we're part of it, we get to be involved in loving each other, meeting needs and having our needs met. There's a wonder and there's a presence of God that's felt tangibly. We come together and sing and you, you hear the voices of God's people almost wash over you like a ministry in and of itself. And part of us should say, surely the presence of God is in this place. He's here with his people. And surely the presence of God is within these people. And there's a sense of awe and fear and wonder that God has done great things. He's filled his people with his spirit and we now see him rightly and give him the praise. You see that in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And not only was this church consistently together, they were experiencing the love and the grace of God through one another. And we'll get to in a second what this isn't, but let's just for a moment kind of sit underneath the weight of this is radical generosity happening in the early church radical love for one another. Acts 2.44, they had all things in common. It's the same word used for fellowship. They had a common life, even common things, as it were. In chapter 4, verse 32 and 35, it says this. It says, now the full number of those who believed the church were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Listen to this part. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. There was selling and sharing property and possessions to meet the needs of others in the body. So, so just hear me on this for a moment. It would be something like this, practically for us, is Lord, I have an excess. Who doesn't have that I might be able to give it to? It's something, that's the reflex of this early church. Now here's what this isn't. This isn't some coercion of your goods and your wealth like communism, some forced pulling away from you what you have to give to others. It's not a forced redistribution of wealth. This isn't Christian socialism. But what it is, we should feel, this is radical generosity. Why? Because we serve a radically generous God. You see that to the Corinthian church, like he who is rich, Jesus, for your sake he became poor, so that through, your po- through, through his poverty you might become rich. So go be generous. That's the outflow of the Christian life is radical generosity. The power and presence of God will cause us to love Jesus and his people more than our comfort, more than our possessions even. And I was really challenged by this last night, just thinking to myself, like I don't, just lately and in my life, there's not as much of my reflex as I, I think it should be to think through all that I have is entrusted to me how can I take any excess I have and give it away? I thank God for just even a couple times over the last month, I've had people ask me in the body, hey, just let me know if there's a need in the body that I can try to meet. And that's an expression of what we're talking about. I have something on hand. I just want to know if it can be a blessing to anybody else. That should be as well a continuous commitment of the people of God. In verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I just wonder walking into this church and its expressions, its house church sort of dynamics and the corporate dynamic, you'd walk in and be like, this place is awesome. These people love each other. It's like people are happy to be here. There's life here. And Ken Hughes comments on that in his commentary on Acts. He says, when someone passed by, he's kind of picturing himself as a passerby of the early church. He says, when someone passed by, one of the house fellowships, they not only heard solemn testimonies and hymns, they sometimes heard laughter. He says this, is sometimes we look like someone put Clorox in our coffee. But in the early church, they were human and full of joy and God's people should be the most joyful people on the planet, praising God, gladness in our meals, generosity in our hearts. It flows out. All the blessings we receive are just kind of pushed outward to be a blessing to other people. Radical, gospel-centered, Christ-driven generosity is what depicted the early church. The people of God praising God and loving one another. I, I can't tell you how many times I've thought of just the picture of us as we worship in here, and I pray it's happened some. I believe it could happen more. As, as people inevitably walk by, there's a lady who walks by here like, 30 minutes into my message, like every time, I'm just like, I wonder what she's doing. She knows we're in here worshiping. As opposed to being bitter, I just pray she's distracted. Like, man, they sure seem convinced of what's going on in there. Those people praise God. 
They sing. And I pray that as people watch us, maybe even hear us, and certainly as they come in here, that they would they'd be struck by the fact that these people praise God, that they have reason to be glad. They're convinced of why they sing. They're convinced of the Savior they speak of, right? And that should depict the people of God. We praise God. And sometimes the awe of God comes in this room, in our hearts, and with such a gravity that we, we dare not speak. But sometimes the presence of God comes and we dare not keep quiet. And we sing and we clap and we praise God because he's worthy of praise. And that's what the early church did. They were continuously committed to praise God. In verse 47, this kind of culminating, glorious, missional community, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In verse 47. I have to wonder, you know, because you have, again, the picture is Peter just delivered this mega sermon, like his first and greatest sermon. And I have to wonder, as he sees 3,000 people, they're like, what should we do? Like, how do we respond? He's like, repent. Believe in the gospel. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. 3,000 people do just that. And you have to wonder how much he thought about his conversation with Jesus back in Matthew 16. Where Peter himself, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Surely the Christ, the Son of God. And what does Jesus say in response? Peter, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And it's exactly what's going on right here. Jesus is building his church. He's calling people to himself. He's adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. People are responding in faith and repentance and now have new life and you have 3,000 spiritual newborns as a result. God himself adds people to the church. God himself brings about salvation in the hearts of men through his power, through his word, as people call on his name, day by day, people are being saved. I have to think as we wake up and we think about what is it we're doing here? Like, what is this ministry about? It's about this. But the people of God, representing God well in this world, passionate about him and loving other people and seeing other people come into the kingdom. Like we're this caravan on this side of eternity, just marching with one another on the way to heaven. And we want to take as many people with us day by day that God would add to our number of those who are being saved. And so we pray because we need God to work. We're not smart enough. We don't have enough programs or personality to change a human heart. That God is the one who works and saves and softens and commends men to respond to his word and humble obedience. So this is a brief picture of a young but healthy church. They were devoted to the things of God, united to one another, and God was powerfully working in their midst. And I pray that we would be a church something like this. Devoted to the scriptures, devoted to fellowship, devoted to a shared table as we're going to take here in just a moment and as we go to communion. Let me just say a couple of things. If you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus, like you just, maybe you've been to church your whole life, but you, to you, it's a little bit like what Peter said in his sermon, like this Jesus, like Jesus feels about like that to you, like this Jesus. He's not so much my king, I'm not his subject, but he's the one that I've thought about, heard about, maybe even some measure believed in, but I've never surrendered to him. And if that's you, then make to today the day of salvation. The message is for you. 
Peter said, this promise is for you and for all who are far off. And as we looked at last week, every single one of us is far off. Jesus is the only hope for the nations. He's the only hope for you. As we feel the weight of the guilt of our own sinning and sinfulness before God, it should drive us to see our need for salvation. And it may very well be as we talk about a healthy church that some of you have seen in unhealthy churches. You've seen unhealthy Christian leaders. You've seen unhealthy Christians. And I feel led to just share this, is don't allow uh, an unhealthy depiction of the Christian life to cause you to throw away Christ. It would be to your detriment eternally that you'd somehow brush away the urgent need you have to respond to Jesus because somehow you believe that a depiction of Christianity fell short in your mind. But run to Christ today. We have a perfect savior. He has a perfect design for his church lived out by imperfect people. But may today the day of salvation. The Lord's Supper is this depiction for us. If, you've, if you are a Christian this morning, as we get ready to march up here and take these elements, if you can kind of picture us as this, a single family kind of marching with one common salvation. We're coming to take the cracker and the cup to commemorate that we don't have any other hope. There's no one in this room that's made right with God by any other means other than through Christ. It's only through his death and his resurrection that we have life for this life and the life to come. So it's a continuous commitment to examine our hearts, remember the cross, and proclaim our collective gratitude for the grace of God through Jesus. As we ponder here in just a moment, just maybe the ways we see sin expressed in our own lives, maybe the guilt and things we need to confess, as we look at the cross every single Sunday, it's a visual depiction for us that Jesus became everything that we are so that we can become everything that he was. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus actively became our sin on the cross, like a certificate of debt. For you to take everything you have done wrong and the wrong condition of your heart and you make it into some certificate of debt, it's as if he, came, he became that certificate and it was nailed to the cross it's taken out of the way now. And through this gaze of faith that we get not only our debt taken away, but we get his perfection applied to our account. That's the gospel. You get to become what you're not through the work of Christ and nothing else. Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So as we come this morning, it's a simple way to say, Jesus, your, your blood shed for me, your body pierced for me is my only hope for salvation. At the end of my days, my... My hope will remain the same in Christ alone. Let me invite you to bow your head just for a minute and just consider, you know, part of this is examination and maybe just consider maybe the things that come into your mind when you think about your different failings over this last week and maybe just even the picture of your greatest failure. And allow it to move you to a place of confession. Confession is to agree with God that sin is wrong and repentance is to turn from it and to turn to God. God, I'm mindful even in this moment where we take time to be still that we need your spirit to show us things that we don't want to hear. Show us things we don't want to see. Speak to us the words of life and to move us away from things that only bring about death. So would you do that now? As we examine our hearts, would you examine us Search us, Lord. 
see if there be any sinful way within us and lead us to your ways that are everlasting and righteous. We acknowledge, God, that all of us have fallen short of perfection. No one in this room can claim perfect righteousness. And that's why we come begging upon, falling upon, casting ourselves upon a common Savior, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, thank you for doing what we could never do on our own, fulfilling the law perfectly and dying in our place as our substitute. Father, thank you that you were willing to crush Jesus in our place, that we could be forgiven.